<laughs> Guys, I can't fucking wait to see that movie. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week, we are bringing you a very special feature. Oh, yes. yes. We're going to play a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. I cannot wait to watch this movie again. It's just so fucking weird. We're about to hit the dance floor at Jackrabbit Slims because we've got that Saturday night fever, baby. I loved this movie too. <laughs> it was so ridiculous. I just pray that Green Book doesn't win this. Oh picture. god, I know. That- <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talk Movie to Me, a weekly podcast where we discuss a movie we've all seen, our week in entertainment, and an artist whose career we'd like to put in focus. I'm Helen. I'm Miss Sinclair. And I'm Edison. And this week we're going on a beach trip. Yes! Pack your Ray-Bans, <laughs> bikinis, or Speedos in my case, a fluffy page-turning novel, and don't forget your sunscreen because this is going to be one hot day at the beach. Wait. Oh, sorry. I'm just getting a message <laughs> from the producers. Oh. 1840s. Mm. <laughs> oh, no sun? What? Oh, what about swim? Oh, freezing. Oh, okay. Um, barbecue? No. Okay, yeah, none of that. Cool. Got it. Right, so this week's film is Ammonite, written and directed by Francis Lee and starring Kate Winslet as Mary Anning, a self-taught paleontologist living in the coastal England town of Lyme. Here, she spends her days scouring the muddy beachside cliffs looking for fossils to sell to tourists in the small shop she runs alongside her widowed mother. One day, a fancy scientist and aspiring paleontologist, Roderick Murchison, played by James McArdle, comes to town to seek guidance from Mary. As it turns out, she's actually quite a legend with the old boys club of stuffy London museum men. He brings with him his wife, Charlotte, played by Sarah Ronan who has clearly experienced a traumatic loss and is suffering with melancholia. When he leaves to travel around Europe for a research expedition, he sees another opportunity to hire Mary, this time to look after Charlotte while he's away. And this is where the story takes off. Ammonite asks the question, If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen? (laughs) Nope, that's the producers again. Oh, right. Yes, that was RuPaul who said that. Sorry. Ammonite asks the question, What makes us fall in love with someone? What parts of ourselves are discovered and which are lost? How well do we really know one another or even ourselves? First impressions, Helen. (laughs) That was a great intro, Edison. Mm -hmm. Okay, first impression for me. The first few moments of Ammonite felt very atmospheric and I wished that I could be sitting in a dark theater with surround sound and a big Mm. screen to be fully enveloped in the environment. But I wasn't. I was at my apartment. Yeah. Sinclair. First impressions for me, immediately being pulled into the film by the audio, as we have not yet been given a visual, but I'm questioning whether I'm hearing someone scrubbing a floor or getting a very thorough sponge bath. One minute in, (laughs) I hit pause and I Google what an ammonite is before resuming the film. (laughs) (laughs) What is an ammonite? It's an extinct sea creature found as a fossil. Mm. Mm. Yes. My first impression is this film is loud. (laughs) It's (laughs) clinking, cranking, loud as hell. I was actually like distracted by it right off the bat. It sounded like a sponge bath. I'm telling you. It was a lot. I was like, this is very loud and and I don't know. And then... Uh The then when it cuts to the woman wiping the floor and then the museum, that whole bit, I legit forgot 
about that until I rewatched the beginning. So my only impression that I forgot till you literally just said it. Exactly. My only first impression was the noise. And then Hmm. that was it. Um, (laughs) All right. So why don't we get into storytelling on Ammonite? Okay. Well, one of the most prominent things for me in watching Ammonite was I couldn't help but think about Portrait of a Lady on yeah, Fire. of course. Which we all watched. Unfortunately uh, for Ammonite. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Which we all watched right before the pandemic, did an episode on it. The two films have a lot of similarities. Forbidden lesbian love story in the ni- in 19th century Europe in a seaside setting. <laughs> and yeah, like you said, Sinclair, that's all quite unfortunate because Portrait <laughs> of a Lady on Fire was one of the most beautiful movies I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And Ammonite was not. Not to say that Ammonite wasn't good, but it's just not, it's not e- even in the same league as Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Yeah, I, th- I think it really pales in comparison to that masterpiece of a film it's so and it's so hard to not compare them yeah i think we probably all experience the same thing like it's basically impossible not to compare them yeah. they're too similar and the whole time i was watching this i was just like i think that i would be enjoying this film more had mm-hmm. portrait of a lady on fire not come out <laughs> but yeah. I'll, I'll disagree with that i think that okay. you could enjoy ammonite if it was good I think that it is very possible for a film to come out after Portrait of a Lady on Fire and captivate you. I just no, of course, but I guess I guess what I mean is I may have thought it better than it is because I hadn't had a a film telling a very similar thematic story beautifully and perfectly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you did not think this was good, Sinclair? Okay, well, yeah, I'll get into it. I'll start off by saying that I thought this was the dullest movie I've seen this year in all categories. So, heads up. You thought those sex scenes were dull? (laughs) Yeah, I thought they were completely gratuitous and nothing, there was nothing that led up to that point to make that scene believable like in any way. Um, I did not like this film at all I thought everything about this this movie was especially the storytelling was as bland as an iceberg lettuce salad with no dressing <laughs> True. wow okay Truly. I yeah. disagree you can disagree with, with fine but I thought this was dull I thought there okay, was the- nothing compelling about the story or characters whatsoever I thought there were no moments of beauty I found the characters to be completely one dimensional I found the dialogue to be uninspired and uninteresting and I have no idea how a film can take a fascinating woman like Mary Anning and two of the most compelling actresses working today and turn them into two wooden talking popsicle sticks like, it boggles my mind. There was zero chemistry in this film. Hmm. Okay, well, I think you're being really harsh. Um, I, I honestly just, I really didn't like this film. Clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Edison, give me some of your thoughts. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be the happy middle here, I think. I definitely do not have any sort of strong feeling quite like that. Sinclair. Mm. I will say that generally speaking, I thought that I will agree with you that I didn't actually really feel that much chemistry between the two main characters. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I thought that Mary Anning, 
I liked the slow reveal of her character. I thought that she could have been a really, really compelling character. And I thought that she was in a way too. I mm. thought the film worked atmospherically. It was incredibly bleak. It was cold. It was distant. The waves crashing and the coldness of those rooms, you could feel it. It like got into your bones and felt desolate. And... I think that that was meant to represent her heart and where she had been, mm. everything that she had locked up away inside of her and cast as this, created this wall around her. It was like barren. And I thought that that worked. And I liked how the kind of chipping away that happened at, well, it was more like a quick explosive doing away with the walls. But um, <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I, I don't know that I would be as critical as you are in, about it, Sinclair, but it I wasn't like overwhelmed. I will say I didn't cry once. I wasn't particularly moved no, at all. No, me, me neither. And I didn't laugh either. So I wasn't, it right, didn't so hit me in any place. all the emotions that a film should, uh, <laughs> should get out of you in some way. Yeah, I was not emotionally moved. It's very true. Yeah. Well, chemistry was just a huge problem with this film. And I don't even necessarily mean between the two main characters. There there was just nothing to this film. I didn't even feel any passion or real relationship with the sea or the, the fossils. Like Mary, is she's a paleontologist and I did not feel or care about her relationship with her work at all. There wasn't any connection really to geology and the earth working alongside the blossoming romance and we've obviously we've touched on portrait of a lady on fire because we we love that film but mm -hmm. okay to compare it to that film in portrait of a lady on fire the theme of art and a muse and painting is so intertwined with the romance emotionally and symbolically there was no connection anywhere in this film especially mary and charlotte but also there was no connection between mary and her mother you know like see i i disagree like listen i didn't love this movie i'm not coming in here like with a rave review and i'm getting offended that you didn't like it i just don't think it was bad i don't i don't i don't think it was great but i don't think it was bad i think that there were thematic elements of this movie that were very interesting. I would have enjoyed more exploration into the gender issues in this film 100%. and the fact that that Marianne, you know, was was this one of the first paleontologists and her work was overshadowed or, or not even recognized because she was a woman. Mm -hmm. um, and we get an exploration into Charlotte's emotional life because she's depressed and as, as we're assuming she had a miscarriage and you know the prescription for a miscarriage at that time was like go spend time by the sea bathe in the ocean and you know so there are these it touches on these themes of gender imbalances at this time I would have liked for that to go further but I don't think it's a failure I think that it it just it wasn't totally hitting the mark on the themes that it was trying to explore but I don't think it was a failure well it's interesting because this is a film about a forbidden romance, but it's not actually documented that there was actually a relationship that right. happened. And there isn't even that much spe speculation of it as well. So the film has received a lot of criticism about that, especially from relatives of Mary Anning. But like, look, if, if you want to do an, an angle 
and explore this idea that maybe she was a lesbian, I think that's fine. I think that's what filmmaking is. I think that's what art is used for to look at different possibilities and interpretations. But at the same time, it has to be done really well. And it has to represent that in a interesting way and be compelling. Otherwise, I would have much rather seen a movie about the trials and tribulations of her career, maybe with the sexuality mixed in there. But honestly, th this woman was a lot more fascinating than I felt this movie allowed her to be. And I would have much preferred to see a story about this woman ostracized by the scientific community instead of having this like lukewarm zero chemistry l love affair well i think part of it is because it might not be a love affair and i think that's part of the thing that worked mm. about this film for me it's kind of what i was saying at the beginning it was so mm. desolate and barren like there's that moment near the end of the film when sh when mary goes to london to see charlotte and charlotte has set up this whole home and it like right. clocks her and mary says you don't understand me and mm -hmm. it's that moment of realization that none of this was love. Mm -hmm. It was lust. It was loneliness. It was mm -hmm. a manifestation of being so isolated and so alone and so without contact for so long that you just give to whatever is there offering you warmth, right? Or offering you that mm -hmm. sort of spark. And that's sad and cynical, but... But at the same time, there... This film doesn't, at least for me, it didn't make me believe at any moment that Mary and Charlotte were even remotely attracted to each other. Like there was no real believable moments for me of attraction or yearning. Okay, all. so but does that come down to the performances or to the film? I the, think like, it comes down to all of it in general. Like, I, I think I had a problem with most things about this film in general, all elements of it. I don't think mm -hmm. anything was working cohesively at all. I believed Mary's character more that she, you know, has always had this yearning towards to be in relationships with women. And we do get a insinuation of a relationship with another woman. Um, mm, Fiona Shaw, yeah. I believed her attraction to Saoirse Ronan 100%. I wasn't 100% sold on Saoirse. And I do have to say, I wasn't crazy about how eager she was at the end I didn't I didn't really buy that 100%. I didn't buy that this woman in this time first of all would kiss her in front of her maid mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't believe that and I yeah. also don't believe that she'd be so gung-ho to be like now you're living with us and yeah this is yeah this is normal like I just don't I don't think at that time that that would have happened that way well it just didn't re it didn't ring as true because it made her out to be like very childish yeah. yeah. One other thing I, I want to say about storytelling, and then maybe we can move on to performances, is there was a meditative quality to this movie that really got me, that I really enjoyed. Like, and it felt, I felt at moments like I was one of those women just like sitting on the beach watching the waves. And that's kind of how the movie felt to me. Like, it was just sort mm -hmm. of like. You could also this... get that from a video on YouTube, though. Just oh my god stop it <laughs> let me have let me say my fucking point um <laughs> like it did, but it did like there were really there were really nice moments of stillness and like use of light and stuff and just like being immersed in this time period where i felt really taking in what this time would have been like especially for women 
Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's get into the performances. Yeah. I mean, for all the good and bad we could say about this movie, you know, I I still think Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan are wonderful in it. I, I don't think you can deny that they give good performances. Oh, I'm 100% going to deny it. What? I cannot believe that this movie had the power to make these two actresses so bland and one note. Okay, no. No, <laughs> I thought, and to not have any chemistry whatsoever. Like, I feel like these two sounded good together on paper or something. And then mm. they started filming and I don't, I don't know. There was, Kate Winslet was one note to me in this. She had one setting, sullen and I th- bitchy. No, I think she had a such a rich internal life happening okay I disagree 100% I think this is one of her worst performances I I cannot Mm. believe I just didn't even believe I was watching Kate Winslet I will say that there was something about Kate in this film that was missing that I have really loved she has a um, playfulness and Mm -hmm. like vibrancy in a lot of her work when she comes out and it's like this fun charisma that's not present in this character and it doesn't make sense that it would be mm-hmm. but there might be might have been moments and opportunities when they were in bed together after the sex while they were having sex something for little glimpses of that to that sort of blossoming sweetness or like fun softness to come out and yeah. I didn't think that she revealed any of that and that was I don't know whether that was her choice or the director's choice or what I don't think that she was one note though I think that it was there was a lot happening it, with this character. I think that she carried the physicality of the character really well. It was yeah. very like insular and protected and heavy and tightly yeah. wound. Um, I, I will say for Sersha, I think that Sersha Ronan is incredibly talented. So we have seen her in the last few years play in Little Women, where she was a teenager, and play in Lady Bird, where she was a teenager. And (laughs) in this film, she reads as much younger and more girlish than either of those two characters. And that's interesting. I thought that that was really interesting. I've never seen her play this type of, like, young naivety before. She usually... because of her, like, piercing eyes and incredible sort of intense presence, has more authority or more more like chutzpah and mm. so i think that that was good um mm. because it was different you know what's for interesting her. i feel like those other two roles that you're mentioning are younger characters that are wanting to present more mature yes whereas this character is having to present mature but actually isn't yes right like women at this time, like she's married. She, you know, you're, you, you can't be afforded that girlishness. And I, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that does come through in an interesting way here where <laughs> we ironically don't see it in those younger roles that she has played. I will though absolutely agree with you, Sinclair, on the one thing, which is that I did not feel that they had any chemistry. Mm-hmm. And in fact that when they were first kissing, and I get it, yes, sure, it may be awkward the first time you're kissing or whatever that but I don't think it it's not a character choice for it to be awkward. I felt like it was awkward. Mm-hmm. I was yeah. I just didn't mm-hmm. feel it. I didn't feel a heat between them. And then suddenly we got to that sex scene and I was like, I know. whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, we are going for it. Um, but I didn't feel it. I felt like when hmm. Sersha was like, 
grabbing Kate's breasts and like going to town on that. Like I they know. were going for it, but it yeah. felt so by the numbers to me. I it didn't feel any gratuitous. real heat. Like I thought that was completely I didn't gratuitous. Think it was gratuitous. I did because there was nothing leading up to that point for that to not feel gratuitous. There was no sense of yearning for me to make that moment believable. I think that's why that sex scene just seems so forced. I think it felt gratuitous to you because they didn't have chemistry and you didn't yeah. believe them together. I if they did it. have chemistry, I don't think I don't think that the issue was with the the timing or the lead up necessarily because oftentimes if you've been constrained and restricted for so long and suddenly it's it can be very sudden where the opportunity for sex happens and shaboom mm. it's on. I mean it it was more explicit than I was expecting it to be but I didn't find it gratuitous and I I yeah Edison I sort of felt it was in the realm of like well one who knows how many times Mary had had sex in her life especially mm-hmm. with a woman like that was probably something she's been wanting forever. And then we have Charlotte, who's like coming out of this depression. And I mean, we don't necessarily know what her sexual backstory is really, but we get, I mean, they, they've they already had a sexual encounter previous to that scene. And then they mm-hmm. have the scene where they're like kissing in the water and stuff. And I don't, I felt it. I was like, yeah, fuck these, they want to bang. <laughs> now they get to bang. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, well, let's get into some technical elements of the film. I thought there was there was some really nice uh, uses of light. There's very little sunlight in this movie, like you said, Anison. <laughs> and then there are a couple scenes where the sunlight does come through and it's like hitting Saoirse's face or like coming into the kitchen area that I thought was really stunning and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was interesting. Like at the very beginning, it was like just shades of gray. So right. cold. I was like, okay, there's no light. And again, I'm trying to not to compare it to <laughs> Portrait of Lady on Fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like that film is so sumptuous with its light. Mm-hmm. It's breathtaking. And like this just was felt so cold. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was lit so cold. But my biggest issue, like I touched on at the beginning, I honestly, I found the sound design and sound mixing of this film to actually be terrible it was so distracting to me all of every little crack of that i get it they're like trying to show you know as she's brushing away the dirt at the fossil but the scrubbing on the floor the waves i don't actually think that that's not how humans sound hear things that's not how we hear we don't hear every single precise sound that's in our environment in crisp crystal clear loud detail we don't most of it is like slightly muffled and muted because we're focusing on one thing and so this film where every single background noise that was happening was so crisp i was like this is a cacophony and it was driving me crazy yeah that's interesting i didn't notice that i must have had a different i mean i watched it on my tv but i don't know and my tv but... is honestly from 1994 so <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I I mean, the technical elements didn't really work for me either. <laughs> I thought that this film was one of the most drab films I've seen in terms of visuals. I was praying for a pop of color, like literally anything. And you can make a very bluish gray color palette interesting and visually striking. You can. And this film doesn't do that. Like, I felt like this film was trying to go for the look of the piano directed by Jane Campion. 
mm-hmm. but just got nowhere near as visually striking as that. Like Portrait of Lady on Fire aside, that had a lot of color. That's fine. <laughs> right. But yeah. in terms of like a blue gray color palette, there's a lot of films that make that beautiful. All right. How about the last <laughs> okay. word on Ammonite? Last word for me. I think that Ammonite is a good film, but not a great one. And man, do I just want to watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire again. <laughs> hmm. Sinclair. <laughs> oh, last word. Uh, I thought this film had the energy of an ancient fossil. It was the equivalent of eating a Quaker rice cake with no spread on top after it's been sitting oh out God. on a counter for a few days. Uh, <laughs> uh, the last word for me is that I do think that Ammonite will appeal to certain people. I think that it's a good movie and I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it, but I wasn't, I'm not about to rave about it. Each week, we challenge ourselves to watch films that fit a particular theme. This week's theme is Growth Spurts, feature-length films that started off as shorts. This is Our Week in Entertainment. Helen, what did you pick? Okay, I picked Whiplash. Short and feature both written and directed by Damien Chazelle. The short came out in 2013, and it won the short film jury prize at Sundance, which then led to Damien Chazelle getting funding to make it into a feature, which came out in 2014. Now, I did see Whiplash, the feature, when it came out, and it was one of my favorite movies of that year. But I, in fact, did not know until Sinclair suggested I do Whiplash for the segment that it did start out as a short film. So I hadn't obviously seen this short film. So I watched that for the first time this week, and it is available on YouTube if anyone else would like to watch it it is essentially the same scene as that scene in the feature where neiman plays in the studio band for the first time and fletcher throws a chair at his head mm-hmm. um it's basically just that scene that they oh made the interesting yeah the short is incredible and it's no wonder that it was so successful and a lot of its success i would say is due to jk simmons performance as fletcher so he was Fletcher in the short film and then Fletcher in the feature, which earned him an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And, you know, I kind of wish I could go back in time now and put him on my villains list for our Mm -hmm. Heroes and Villains episode because he's such... I mean, this character is insane. But yes, that Heroes and Villains episode that is now exclusively available to Patreon members. (laughs) Little plug. Great plug. Uh, (laughs) So I was looking up some of the history of how this all came to be because you'll notice in the credits for the short, Jason Blum of Blumhouse Pictures and Jason Reitman are both executive producers. So I'm like, okay, yes, it started as a short film, but like it had those two guys executive producing and had J.K. Simmons in it. Like obviously this wasn't small potatoes. There were connections, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and... Uh, Damien Chazelle actually went to Harvard and studied filmmaking at Harvard and then moved to L.A. and had been doing some work as a writer. And I assume that's how he got connected with Jason Blum. But it's it's so clear from the short that Chazelle has vision and intention as a director. He knows the story that he wants to tell with Whiplash. It's so well edited as is the feature, and in fact, it won an Oscar for film editing. (laughs) Now, one big difference between the short and the feature is that our protagonist, Andrew Neiman, is played by Johnny Simmons in the short, and then by Miles Teller in the feature. 
you know, you watch Johnny Simmons in the short and he's so fucking sweet. (laughs) And he was considered to play the lead in the feature, but they ended up going with Miles Teller because he is a better drummer and was a bigger name, which is sad. But I also am kind of glad that that happened because Miles Teller has like a chip on his shoulder. Like he's not super, super sweet, lovable. Mm-hmm. Um, which makes the abuse that he endures a little bit more s- easy to take if than if it were Johnny Simmons, who's like the sweetest actor. <laughs> yeah, because um, you feel like Miles Teller can fight back. Yeah, or like that he's he's got like a dickishness about him, like for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I don't feel quite as bad. <laughs> so in all of my excitement, I haven't even given a synopsis about Whiplash. If you haven't seen Whiplash, it follows Andrew Neiman, who is a jazz drummer at a prestigious music school. And he gets into the studio band that is led by Fletcher, played by J.K. Simmons, who is a tyrant of a conductor. And it's basically about them butting heads in this band. I love what this movie examines, the perfection that's associated with art. There are elements of the student-teacher relationship here that remind me of some of my teachers from the acting conservatory that I went to in New York. And it's interesting how there's, or at least there used to be, and not so much anymore, but there's there was this weird understanding that like striving for a certain level of art allows for abuse. Oh, 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't have to be that way. And like you, you really do see it to an extreme in this film. It's so hard to watch. And like, you know, you say it's a movie about a jazz drummer. You don't think it would be like edge of your seat, like looking away from the TV. But it really like it's this movie is really, really hard to watch at times. Last thing I'll say, the final scene in this movie is one of the best fucking scenes I have ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. Mm-hmm. No, it is. It absolutely is. I agree. Yeah, it's so tense. Unbelievable. Like, listen, if you haven't seen Whiplash, just don't listen to me say what happens in the end. But, you know, he goes on stage um, to play in this performance that Fletcher is heading after he's been fired from his job because of Neiman. And as he goes on stage, Fletcher says to him, like, I know it was you. And I'm going to f- embarrass you. I'm here to fuck with you, basically, is what he says. And then embarrasses him in front of this auditorium of people. He leaves and then he comes back and he fucking kills it and like takes control of the stage and takes control of this band. And there's I never noticed this the first time I watched it, but there's a panning element that the camera does in this scene where they're panning between Miles Teller and uh, J.K. Simmons as he plays and then. Fletcher responds back and forth, back and forth. And you're actually, the camera is like giving you whiplash as it pans back and forth. And I was like, that's so fucking brilliant. Anyway, I love this movie so much, even though it is really, really difficult to watch. And I highly recommend, if you can't stomach watching this for a second time, go watch the short film on YouTube because it's equally as well done and compelling. I'm all sweaty now. (laughs) When I get like really passionate about movies, you know, I sweat. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, (laughs) who's next? (laughs) I'll go. Okay. So my film this week is Neil Blomkamp's fantastic sci-fi film and debut feature film, District 9 from 2009, Mm. uh, which is based on his 2006 short film, Alive in Joburg. The film's, the story is very similar. So 
This is a short film about aliens arriving in Johannesburg and how the humans react to that. It's really impressive in terms of its like visual effects for mm. a short film. And it's just really cool and inventive the way that he's told the story. He wrote and directed the short as well as the feature. And Peter Jackson saw it and was a huge fan of it and actually hired him to direct a Halo, a, a movie based on the mm. video game Halo. That so never saw the light of day, but then Neil Blomkamp managed to convince him to find a feature of mm. his short. Cool. So the film is, as I said, set in Johannesburg in South Africa. It basically opens with this giant spaceship hovering above the city, silent and dormant. And then we're told that it arrived 20 years earlier. And at, the, at first, the world didn't know what to expect. Everyone kept waiting for something to happen, uh, but nothing did. So eventually, a United Nations team managed to like cut their way through the hull of the spaceship. And inside, they found a population of a, a million aliens. But they weren't here for war. They weren't here to like conquer or even to connect with us. They were simply starving refugees from their own dying world. Hmm. And... So the South African government set up basically a refugee camp to hold them all until humanity could like figure out what the hell to do with these million aliens. But now, 20 years later, they re remain effectively imprisoned in that camp, uh, which mm. has now evolved into a giant slum, basically just like the South African townships, mm. uh, plagued by crime and violence. And the aliens are despised by the human citizens of Johannesburg, who call them prawns as this like derogatory mm. slur. As an audience, our guide through the film is the protagonist, Vickis, played by Charlto Copley. He's an agent for a group called the Multinational Unit, and they have been contracted to evict the aliens from District 9 to another area further away from Johannesburg. So one day while he's serving an eviction notice, he discovers a vial of liquid that he accidentally squirts in his face, and then soon after begins transforming into one of the aliens himself. Okay? Vickis is awful. He literally doesn't see these creatures as having any more value than an insect. So, like, as you can imagine, this film is very rich thematically. It's all about the impacts of colonialism. And particularly in this context of being set in Johannesburg, the parallels to apartheid are very clear. District mm -hmm. 9 is no different than the concentration camps of the Nazis or like the horrific conditions of the Gaza Strip in Palestine. It mirrors what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims in China right now as we speak. It's mm. This film is using a science fiction story to make humanity reflect on the most appalling acts in our like collective history. And in that way, the film is fantastic and is so much more than just a great movie. But it's also just a really great sci-fi action movie. And I think mm -hmm. that's where this film is really brilliant too, because you can go into this and be like, yo, this movie is awesome and not see any of the significance from it. And it still just be like an amazing movie. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Okay, question. I have a question though. Yeah. How did they actually, because I've seen District 9 and it is a lot. It's a lot. It's a fucking lot. So how did they actually, I have not seen the short for this film. So like, how is that story in a short film? Like, how long mm. is this short? 
It's very short. It's like six minutes. So the parts in the short, it's just like a very quick glimpse. So you get a cop kind of talking about what's happening. Oh, this eviction. And you see them handing out eviction notices. Uh, mm -hmm. And you see the like spaceship above. And then you see an alien like kind of fighting back against these cops in a kind of cool a robot outfit. An alien like mm -hmm. technology robot outfit thing and it's kind of done through visual effects in that portion of the short film it's really cool mm -hmm. so basically the feature was allowed to like expand on these like sci-fi elements and actually like show more of the world yes and think. also expand on the commentary on like apartheid specifically in this film mm -hmm. and yeah. that segregation post-colonial uh, impact mm-hmm that is, I mean, something I love so much about short films, I mean, one is that they can do what we're talking about right now, which is lead to becoming features and getting mm -hmm. funding and, you know, a proof of concept. But they also can just be this snippet of a world, you know, mm -hmm. like there is something really special about that because it doesn't have to be, you know, a story art. Like you can just see this glimpse of a world or a life that you haven't considered before. And I'm, I guess I'm thinking more about like sci-fi stuff because I've mm -hmm. seen some really cool mm -hmm. sci-fi shorts before. And I love that that's a, that this is a medium to explore those imaginative ideas, you know? Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. that definitely leads into mine. <laughs> yeah. Yes. For sure. Like that's a pretty good segue because that's exactly what happened with this. Mm. film so the short that i watched is called la jete and it's from 1962 and it's directed by chris marker who was a french director and this short was actually the inspiration for 12 monkeys mm -hmm. directed by uh, terry gilliam so quick synopsis via imdb the story of a man forced to explore his memories in the wake of World War III's devastation told through still images. So this was a really <laughs> unique experience watching this because, mm. you know, this isn't a short film by Terry Gilliam. It's a short that was adapted mm. to be 12 Monkeys. So Terry Gilliam took mm. this concept and made it his own these films are so different and the most unique element of la jete is the fact that it is a short that is told only through black and white photographs oh interesting mm -hmm. so it's just black and white photographs being presented to you and yeah. it's accompanied by a narrator and a score and i've seen 12 monkeys a couple of times but watching this short and then watching 12 monkeys again for this segment was so interesting because they are mm. so different so there's the same concept but these are two very different directors terry gilliam was really inspired by the shorty love the concept and how he actually created the world is really incredible when you see the simplicity of la jete the short. Mm, mm -hmm. interesting yeah la jete it's very haunting and it has sci-fi elements, but it's also sadly romantic and mm. it's very philosophical. And it was so unique to see a story portrayed through photographs. I, I, I don't think I've actually seen that done before, to be yeah. honest. But it's, you know, like 12 Monkeys, the film starts off with a young boy seeing this very distinct image of a man dying at an airport. 
it's right before this devastating blast and this creates a post-apocalyptic setting where in Paris everyone is living underground and you flash forward the boy is older and he's now a prisoner and they're conducting these time travel experiments on prisoners in this underground world. So very similar to 12 Monkeys, Bruce Willis is also seeing this image of a man dying in an airport when he was a child. He is also part of these experiments underground. Each character gets sent back and forth in time, hoping to find a solution to the present. In La Jetée, the man focuses on an image of a woman that he saw on a pier or a jetty, so la jetée, a jetty, mm-hmm. <laughs> on the day when he's at the airport when he was a child. And that's the last image he really remembers of the world before it's oh, wow. devastated. So he always goes back to her in time. Huh. And he ends up falling in love with her and he goes back in time to various points in her life. So for her, it's this man that keeps appearing at different points in her life and in each film it has that aspect of of the man being sent back in time where in La Jete it's more about the man and the woman in 12 Monkeys Bruce Willis mm-hmm. there's more of that action element to mm-hmm. it where he's looking to try to stop the spread of that virus where I have to say too, watching 12 Monkeys now during a pandemic with all the mm. virus stuff going on it was a, it was a lot <laughs> For oh, sure. wow, yeah. This is really cool how Terry Gilliam adapted this into his own style because, you know, in La Jete, you can't really see the, the post-apocalyptic world in, in this short. It's very simplistic mm-hmm. photographs. But in Terry Gilliam's 12 Monkeys, he gets to kind of, like, he gets to create this world, this underground world, and he is so good at post-apocalyptic sci-fi. Mm. Very good. He, he Yeah, is, yeah, yeah really able to show the absurdity of it the terror of mm. it he has these unnerving camera angles and mm. you know the terry gilliam style where he has that those really in, invasive close-ups mm. that make yeah. you feel off kilter and it was really cool how he was able to like expand on this idea but it definitely feels like a terry gilliam fil- film it doesn't mm. feel like someone's just replicated this short and done right. it in the exact same style i also found that La Jete, it's more subtle and existential and, and haunting and more mm. about lost love where 12 Monkeys mm. really gives you a kind of like a wild ride <laughs> and a time travel yeah. movie. But there's some really wonderful quotes in this short that just really struck a chord with me. Mm. There's one where the narrator says, nothing distinguishes memories from ordinary moments. Only later do they become memorable by the scars they leave. Mm. And the film is just questioning that idea of what a memory or an image is to you. It becomes really impactful more in the future because a lot of the times you use it to make the present feel easier. Right. You know, and feel more comforting. So how, like how correct are our memories? You know, I've always really appreciated the concept of 12 Monkeys and then watching La Jete, it really helped me piece things together in in a deeper way when I watched it this time around. And the films, they both come full circle in in the same way at the end. In in La Jete, the end of the film, the narrator actually describes the ending where in 12 Monkeys, you Mm. actually see it happen. But basically at the end, he the narrator says, 
He looked for a woman's face at the end of the pier. He ran towards her, and when he recognized the man who had trailed him since the camp, he knew there was no way out of time, and he knew that this haunting moment he had been granted to see as a child was the moment of his own death. So the film comes in full circle where it's actually him as a child watching his own death. His future mm. self back in time dying. Oh my god, that I can't. I yeah. cannot. <laughs> yeah. like my brain. And that's is how broken. Twelve Monkeys <laughs> ends as as well. He's he's a yeah. child and he sees himself dying as an adult. But but anyway, yeah, this is great. You can actually you can watch this on the Criterion channel if you have it. You probably can get it on YouTube as well. It's a pretty famous short, so it should be relatively easy to find. Yeah. So now it's time for our In Focus segment. Each week we pick an artist and take a look at their filmography and break down the projects and moments that made them the fascinating creatives that they are today. So join us while we explore the career of an Oscar-winning actress who started working in Hollywood as a professional before she was even old enough to drive. Some larger-than-life prequels moved her closer to adult roles, and some smart film choices helped her distinguish herself from all the other beautiful girls in Hollywood. She's been quite vocal about her vendetta against the dark world of the film industry, which made her want to be anywhere but here. But an educational break in a prestigious school and some introspective roles showed her that movies are where her heart is. (laughs) <laughs> this actress is so stunning, she has everyone saying I love you, and that perfect face even gives the God of Thunder a run for his money. Whether she's <laughs> accepting an Oscar or rapping on SNL, this star brings the heat, and Helen May fangirl herself into annihilation while we put the <laughs> jaw-dropping career of Natalie Portman in focus. Mm-hmm. Helen, nice. are you going to be okay? We know you love Natalie. I do love Natalie. I think I'll be okay. I feel like <laughs> I already gave so much with my whiplash talk. <laughs> that I don't know if I have it in me, but we'll see. We'll see. So we had to break Natalie Portman's career down into her defining moments in movies. And we had to decide on the movie that put her on the map. And that is none other than Leon the Professional from 1994, mm-hmm. directed by Luc Besson. Here's a quick synopsis via IMDb if you have not seen The Professional. Matilda, a 12-year-old girl, is reluctantly taken in by Leon, a professional assassin, after her family is murdered. An unusual relationship forms. <clears throat> Cough. Uh, yeah, you think? <laughs> As she becomes his protege and learns the assassin's trade. So... This was Natalie Portman's first film role. Mm -hmm. And I think that this film and her experience filming this movie really shaped her career and the choices that she's made throughout her career. And watching this again in 2020 and knowing a lot more now and having much more of a critical eye it it makes for a very interesting viewing and we'll get we'll we'll get into that but one thing is for sure it's very clear why she became a movie star after watching this film and all criticism aside there are some things that i like about this film you two hadn't seen this film no i I had never seen this movie edison you hadn't okay yeah so it's like really interesting that your first watch is actually now now yeah at the age of 37 right right now in 2020 it's wild watching this now. I cannot imagine this film being made. It's completely outrageous. Mm-hmm. 
That being said, aside from the, like, incredibly creepy, 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 creepy Lolita pedo element of this, the movie's fucking great. As just, like, an action movie and whatever, (laughs) the assassin movie, it's so fucking Mm -hmm. good. And Natalie Portman is undeniable as, like, her charisma is insane and she's so, so dynamic. The scene Mm -hmm. where she, like, bursts into laughter, insane laughter in the dining room or whatever... She's really yeah. free as an actress. It's incredibly uncomfortable watching her, knowing that she's 12 years old, playing a 12-year-old, yeah. being highly sexualized. But, like, mm-hmm. fuck, she is really charismatic. Yeah, I will say that there is a a quiet maturity and then also a childish precociousness about her mm-hmm. yes. that we see in this and that you see in a lot of the roles that she plays. Yeah, there is that maturity but, you know, on the other hand, like she has talked about her experience making this film and how this film sexualized her at a really young yeah. age. And she has a couple good quotes about making this film. Uh, one is, I excitedly opened my first fan mail mm. to read a rape fantasy that a man oh. had written me. A countdown was started on my local radio show to my 18th birthday, the date that it would be legal to sleep with me. Mm-hmm. And I understood very quickly, even as a 13-year-old, that if I were to express myself sexually, I would feel unsafe and that men would feel entitled to discuss and objectify my body to my great discomfort. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. And, you know, I think the problem in the professional is there are some cringy moments with Leon where she's kind of becoming a woman and especially that dress-up scene. Oh, my God. Yeah. Overall, you know, I think that in the film, Leon is portrayed more of a paternal figure than he is a romantic figure. But at the same time, what's happening in this film is not necessarily that she's being sexualized to Leon. She's being sexualized to the audience. To the audience. And I think that's mm-hmm. what the biggest problem is that in this film is that no matter what's going on with the characters, it's the way she's being portrayed yeah. to us. But I do need to say, just to lighten the mood a little <laughs> bit here, a little fun fact that I experienced while I was watching The Professional, I, I actually went down this rabbit hole. There's a character in this film, you might remember, it's the guy with the dreads. Yes. He's like oh, yeah. evil <laughs> Gary Oldman's sidekick. Yeah. He kind of looks like Jared Leto in dreads. Oh, so yeah. I was watching this and I was like, that really looks like Gary Oldman's character in True Romance. Yeah, actually. Yes. Oh, yes. So I did some digging uh-huh. and I was like, okay, who is this actor? And it's this guy named Willie Oneblood. And he was this white reggae musician in the 90s. And he had one hit song, Whiny Whiny, on the Dumb and, Dumb, uh, Dumb and Dumber soundtrack. <laughs> Willie but One Blood. Willie One Blood. But yes, Dead. he was actually the inspiration for Gary Oldman's pimp character in True Romance. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So oh that's a little fun, fun fact for you. <laughs> okay. We had to decide on Natalie's big three, the three movies that we think define her career. And Edison, I think you have the first one. I do. And that is uh, 1999's Star Wars episode (laughs) one, The Phantom Menace. Written and directed by George Lucas, of course. So this is really interesting. When we were discussing Natalie Portman and we were talking about the big three, and Sinclair, you were like, well, yeah, Phantom Menace is kind of what made her like household name famous. 
And I was like, mm-hmm. really? And in my brain, Natalie Portman kind of has always been famous because I was a teenager and I didn't know any different. Right. And I thought that she was already super famous going into this. But mm. she wasn't. She mm. had, you know, if you were into film and you knew Leon the Professional and whatever, sure. And a couple other films from the earlier 90s. But she was still a kid. Like this was, she was like a teenage kid. Like stardom. Exactly. And mm. I f- had forgotten that. And of course, this movie, I mean, this was Star Wars. She plays Queen Amidala. And yeah. it, the movie made a billion dollars at the box office. It was could not have been a bigger deal for her. It also probably could not have been any worse of a movie. <laughs> oh. I, I don't even, I, I don't know. No, actually, that's a lie. Because the second one, Attack of the Clones, is actually worse. But this... I remember when this came out, all of the conversation about Jar Jar Binks being like a racist character. Okay, now I was like 15 years old when this movie came out. I was an idiot. I was like, what do you mean? He's an alien. He can't be racist. I just had no idea, right? And didn't even look into it or whatever, obviously. It's almost incomprehensible. How on earth did this character exist? Jar Jar Binks' mm. opening line is, Misa called Jar Jar Binks. Misa, your humble servant. Literally. (laughs) And then he is just a never-ending stream of the worst kind of, like, caricature black tropes. Um, It's it's astonishingly awful. Mm. And it's not just Jar Jar Binks. The, like, evil... There's, like, the evil manipulating, manipulative, conniving alien races who are, like, backstabbers and whatever. And they are, like oh, no, we should not have done that. And they're yeah. the worst kind of Asian stereotypes with their robes and everything. I was like, what the fuck is this movie? Okay, so to Natalie Portman, she's she actually is really good in this. Because she's really good in everything. And I think mm-hmm. it's exactly that quality. She was in high school still when she was doing this movie. She was a teenager. But she just has this maturity about her. And so she was able to actually be believable as this young queen who has power and has command and demands the respect of those around her and she speaks with this like authoritative voice and she's in all the action sequences senator yes absolutely (laughs) and so she's actually a really badass character and she's Hmm. the hero with a film really other than like the jedis so she's really great in this and obviously i understand why it was so huge for her career and it's like why it didn't do the same for Hayden Christensen, bless him. Well, but th- those two had no <laughs> chemistry either. We've been talking about chemistry a lot on this episode. Yeah. And those two were criticized for sure. Well, but that's on him. If you if you can't manifest <laughs> you chemistry, chemistry with Natalie yeah. Portman, then yeah. there's, it's it's on you. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> What's next on the big three? Well, next up is V for Vendetta from 2005, directed by James McTague. And this is based on a graphic novel series by Alan Moore and David Lloyd. Quick synopsis if you haven't seen V for Vendetta. In a future British tyranny, a shadowy freedom fighter known only by the alias of V plots to overthrow it with the help of a young woman. So I was mentioning this to you guys uh, before. Mm-hmm. that I've had a really big complex with this film. I've never been able to finish it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I'm, the same. I'm the same way. <laughs> this week I said to myself, I'm going to be watching V for Vendetta. I'm going <laughs> to do it for In Focus. I'm going to finish it, God damn it. And I did. And? And? <laughs> Congratulations. Okay, so I really liked it. 
Oh, oh okay. my God. I really like this so, film. So you'll it... probably really like Moulin Rouge. <clears throat> well, <saying>. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it, yeah, it's funny because I tried watching this a couple times when it first came out and I just couldn't get through it. And it was interesting because I'm a lot older now. So I feel like I just understood it more. I, I just understood it more. I found it more interesting, and I watched the whole thing, which really helped because it gives the story a chance to actually come together. <laughs> Resolve, yeah. <laughs> I got to say, too, there is a theme going on for me this week with 12 Monkeys and also V for Vendetta because this is another film about a virus. <laughs> Oh. That is sweeping through your Oh my god. It was a lot for right now, for sure. Watching yeah. for Vendetta. But this film was huge for Natalie Portman, most notably because this is the film where she shaved her head. Yeah. That was a big, big talking Yes, it really was. Yeah. yeah. And she basically attended all the award shows rocking the shaved head. And I got to say, she looks stunning. <laughs> she looks amazing. And her yeah. face is so beautiful. Like, you look at her and you're like, yep, you don't need hair. Yeah, you don't <laughs> need hair. Yeah. She's that beautiful. She's beautiful. But this yeah. film became a really iconic time in her career. And, mm. you know, it was also the first film that was a big budget film where she was actually carrying the film as a lead. Mm. Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like Hugo Weaving is V in this film, but you don't see Hugo Weaving. No, He's it's just her. a voice. Like, you never see yeah. you never see V's face. And V for Vendetta, it also was a big graphic novel series, too. So it had a following in that respect. And also the Wachowskis wrote the screenplay for this film mm-hmm. too and that's a huge matrix following now. yeah a lot well. of so, nerd cred a lot of nerd cred a lot, for nerd cred. A lot of people cred. are anticipating this film and honestly she's great in this film she has a lot of emotional moments her character goes through a lot i always question why the character of evie had to be this like hot young female that was like looking up to this older heroic man <laughs> But she's really great in this film, and she sort of becomes a heroine in her own right. And you do learn that when you watch the entire film. (laughs) So, (laughs) okay, Helen, what's number three? Number three is Black Swan from 2010, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Yep. Description courtesy of IMDb, a committed dancer struggles to maintain her sanity after winning the lead role in a production of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. So obviously starring Natalie Portman as well, Mila Kunis and Vincent Cassell. I adore Black Swan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had actually watched it back in February of this year because I just felt like it, but I did watch it again for the podcast. Mm -hmm. And I I texted you guys and I said, why did I decide to watch Whiplash and Black Swan in the same week? Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, because there are a lot of similarities between these two films. Uh, You know, obsession and perfection when it comes to art. I love the thriller aspect of this movie and the duality that exists within it. There's also some really fascinating body horror Mm -hmm. in this movie when she's pulling the feathers out of her Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. Ew, and the fingernails. The fingernails. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's... not even that grotesque, but there's something about it. Like, we've all had a hangnail, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you pull off and it starts to bleed and it's painful. Like, like there's there are those moments in this film that are just, ugh, yeah, very, very cringy, but exquisite in my opinion. 
And it is definitely one of my favorite performances of mm-hmm. Natalie's. And many would agree, seeing as it won her her Oscar. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, she plays Nina Sayers, who, you know, is vying for this role. And she is very childlike in this film. Still lives with her mother. Sleeps in this child's room with all these stuffed animals. Whereas Pink is so timid and she's doing this thing with her voice throughout most of the the film that is this breathy, childish, you know, really, really timid voice that I find quite fascinating. There's one scene in particular that I think her acting is so phenomenal and it's when she finds out that she got cast in the role mm. and goes to the bathroom to call her mom and she's crying (laughs) and it's like equal parts pain and joy Mm -hmm. in that performance and you can see it like you see the exhaustion Mm. of like i've been working so hard for this and i'm so happy but i'm also so exhausted Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she just she captures this ballerina role this this you know tortured ballerina role so well and you see it in her physicality you know she trained extensively for a year and she's got that dancer's body I mean her her body is kind of disturbing actually to look at because she's so thin in this film Mm. and she's so small like she's tiny she's tiny she looks like a child which is interesting because she has a quote in talking about taking on this role and she says I'm trying to find roles that demand more adulthood for me because you can get stuck in a very awful cute cycle as a woman in film, especially being such a small person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, there is so much that goes into this performance. And then we, you know, we do get that that flip at the end um, where she, you know, she becomes the dark version mm-hmm. of herself and she does dark so well too. And she does this manipulative evil thing so well in other, other films. And when we see that finally come to fruition at the end, it's, it's just a magnificent performance and it's a magnificent film. In my opinion, I absolutely love this movie. It was also like an outrageous success. It made $330 million at the wow. box office. Yeah. And for a movie like this, like this is not a, exactly this is an art housey movie. <laughs> this isn't Thor, like yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> okay, Sinclair, uh, what is Natalie's hidden gem? I'm curious to see what you picked. I watched my Blueberry Nights. Oh. oh, nice. It's from 2007. It's directed by Wong Kar Wai, who his films are very visually striking. And I find it to be very poetic. This film is really star-studded. And interestingly, the lead actually isn't Natalie Portman. It's Nora Jones. Right, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Singer-songwriter Nora Jones. But she actually, she really fits in this. And yeah, Wong Kar Wai, he just, he really loved her music. And he didn't care that she didn't have any acting experience at all. He just wanted her to be the lead in this film. (laughs) Uh, Jude Law is in this. And he is Mm. as sexy as ever. Mm-hmm. Rachel Weiss is in this. She is as sexy as, sexy as ever. As ever. <laughs> Natalie Portman also in this, as sexy as ever. Mm. This film is a mood. Mm. <laughs> it's a mood. That is the best way to describe it. And it's What's it's it about? honestly this film is like fucking attractive. <laughs> 
Uh, that's a good question, Helen. Here's a quick synopsis via IMDb. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> a young, lonely woman takes a soul-searching journey across America to resolve her questions about love while encountering a series of offbeat characters along the way. So, yeah, she's, like, soul-searching, and she's running into, you know, attractive people. Law along the way. Yeah, attractive people <laughs> along the way. Yeah, honestly, this film is just such a mood. The, the color palette is gorgeous. There's a blueberry pie theme that's going on, so the color blue is featured a mm. lot in this film in the most stunning way. And there's a lot of moody reds and deep greens and a lot of dreamy-like shots. And, yeah, there's a lot of visual poetry in this and Nora Jones's voice is so soothing I love her music Mm. yeah and Natalie Portman is a a really cool character in this she basically plays this free-spirited poker player gambler (laughs) with an attitude and it's it's a cool character for her for sure and she has so much confidence in this and Mm. authority and yeah, and she just looked great too in this film. I thought I thought they just shot her so beautifully in this. I don't think it's the strongest story, but yeah, like I said, it's a mood. I'm in this mood. I'm, gonna get, I'm in this mood for a film that's a mood, okay? <laughs> Hashtag mood. Hashtag mood. Just light it. Get candle, your wine and kimono, honey. Pour some wine. Put your kimono on. Eat some blueberry pie and just chill and watch it. <laughs> okay, Edison. What is Natalie's pop culture moment? Right. So with Natalie, again, like she's been famous for a very long time, but she has never, ever been one to court the paparazzi, to court any sort of unneeded attention. You know what I mean? She pretty much keeps her private life private. She's not sharing Mm -hmm. stories of her personal relationships, really. It's like she tries to just keep it about the work as much as possible. That being said, she's been famous for like 27 years now. So there's all kinds of opportunities where she has touched pop culture. But I will say the thing that is probably the most unique about Natalie Portman and the thing that stands out the most and that most people were like, huh, was that kind of at the like height of the beginning, that beginning chunk of her career after, right after Star Wars came out, right? This has turned her into a household name globally. She Mm -hmm. decides to pretty much put her film career on hold and enroll at Harvard University to yeah. get a psychology degree. And for someone of that age and that stardom in Hollywood, at that point in their career, it's pretty much unheard of that they would do mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. Like, what would you do if you, like, went to your class and Natalie Portman was sitting there? Well, I wouldn't be able to focus on the class, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. Very I, distracting. There are several subreddits and Quora groups Mm. about people who went to Harvard at the same time as Natalie Portman. (laughs) And just like, not, but like just people ask, because there's so many people are curious about that and they have asked a question on Reddit and whatnot. And, you know, she was at Harvard with a lot of people for Uh all those years. So people comment and pretty much all of them say it was like mostly unremarkable. She was just kept to herself, was pretty studious. She lived in a dorm room for the first two years of her time there. Wow. Yeah, like she was just that down-to-earth studious girl who would occasionally go off and do a play like Seagull on Broadway and then come back to her mm-hmm. studies and <laughs> and whatnot. But anyway, yeah, I think kind of Natalie Portman as Harvard graduate is probably her pop culture moment. Mm. Mm. Um, what is up and coming for Natalie Portman? I don't know, and I'm actually so curious about this. Helen, tell us. Well, I'm sure you know one of them, Eddie. 
Oh. Thor, Love and yes. Thunder. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm absolutely... Of course. I'm desperate for that. Yeah. So she's playing Jane Foster, who then becomes Thor. Yes. Takes on the position of Thor. Um, and that looks like it's coming out in 2022. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, aside from Thor, which, you know, just a small film, um, she has a miniseries that's been announced called We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves, which is based off of a novel by Karen Joy Fowler. And this is the description courtesy of IMDb. A college student laments the loss of a chimpanzee she claims is her twin sister. Oh, my. Fuck, I love Natalie Portman. (laughs) I know. I, and this, this book was quite popular and now I want to read it (laughs) before uh, the movie comes out. Uh, But uh, speaking of twin sisters, Natalie is starring in and directing a film currently untitled. Here is the description. Twin sisters, Pauline Esther Friedman and Esther Pauline Freeman, form a rivalry when they both become the leading advice columnists in America during the 1950s, writing for different publications under the pseudonyms Abby, Dear Abby, and Ann Landers, Ask Ann Landers. Mm, Mm, Cool. Cool. That's really cool. So there was a couple other like announced ones that were sprinkled in there, but these were sort of the top three that I thought were standouts that I particularly am excited to see. So mm-hmm. okay, guys, there's only one way to end this in focus, Natalie Portman, and that is by playing a fun little game of Mary Fuck Kill. Edison, <laughs> what film do you want to marry? Okay, I'm going to marry Annihilation. Um, maybe a very strange wedding. Yeah, and you're like living your life in an existential crisis. I, a weird marriage, totally. I get that. It's not necessarily romantic, but I loved this movie so much. We did yeah. an episode on it, right? It was Helen yeah. losing her mind. Um, but yeah. and I've seen it. I've rewatched it a few times, like maybe three or four times since then too. And I just love wow. it. She's so good in it, and I feel like. It's one of the films in her filmography that I will continue to revisit over and over again throughout the years. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Helen? Okay, well, I'm obviously marrying Closer. Yes. Uh, Closer <laughs> is one of my favorite movies of all time. I was actually re-watching it right before we started recording tonight. I fucking love her in this movie. I feel like I've been saying a lot of like very expressive love statements in this episode but i can't help it i love closer and i even though it's entirely about infidelity i'm gonna marry it (laughs) (laughs) sinclair (laughs) well yeah i think i'm gonna marry my blueberry nights because yeah i want to live my life in that color palette Mm. okay honestly so gorgeous and the whole movie is just otis redding and like (laughs) nina simone Mm. Okay, Nora okay, Jones. Okay. Like, that's some chill shit, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I live my life in that. <laughs> Fair. Okay, Edison, what film do you want to fuck? Oh, God, Thor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm sorry. I don't care about anything else. I don't care about a single other thing on her filmography or anybody's th- filmography. Thor. <laughs> Give me Thor. He's a god. He's a goddamn god. Thor. Mm. <laughs> Helen? Um, I'll be fucking Black Swan. Uh, this movie is sexy <laughs> and so fucked up. And we get a fun, sexy pseudo relationship between her and Mila Kunis. And just, you know, to take a page out of your book, Sinclair, it's a mood. It's a dark mm. mood. It's a dark mood, for sure. But it's but a it mood. Is, it is a mood and it is sexy. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Sinclair? I'm going to fuck brothers. Yeah, I knew okay. that. Because, oh, Jake Gyllenhaal is so hot in brothers. <laughs> Truly. I and I just so like, long. I love this film. I remember when this film came out and all three of them had just become, a, they were just adults. Like they were just yeah, yeah. mature and they were taking on this, these roles that were so complex and it's also a American version of a film by mm-hmm. Suzanne Bear. Right. Mm. So I love her as well. And I actually thought that this, uh, uh, this was a pretty good American version of, of, of mm. that film. So, mm-hmm. oh, and I just love Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. For sure. Okay, Edison, what film do you want to kill? So I had briefly mentioned this earlier, but I am going to kill Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones. Mm. I love Star Wars, and this movie is just god-awful. The only good (laughs) thing that it gave me was a visual of my dream home, Villa del Balbianello (laughs) on Lake Como. And, you know, by 2002, I had already chosen my homes around the world. I had had them picked out since I was like 14 years old. And that was one of them, this gorgeous villa. And they shot it there. And that was the highlight of the whole movie for me. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Helen? <laughs> um, I'm going to actually kill one I haven't seen, but I've heard is not very good. And that's Lucy in the Sky. Oh, God. Yes. Mm. Eddie, correct me if I, I'm wrong, but you saw it. At I did see it. And it was so disappointing. <clears throat> so bad. Yeah. I remember you saying that. And I remember reading reviews of it and... Also, for some reason, it's like on the heels of First Man to me. And I'm like, can we not make these boring space movies right now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Sinclair, what are you killing? I'm going to kill Song to Song. And I've killed this yeah, before. Yeah, I knew you would. I knew I you would. I just really, oh, Terrence Malick, Song to Song. What a disaster. Just a pretentious <laughs> disaster. I just. So much it. talent in that movie, too. So I just much, can't. So much talent. I'm, I know. It's unbelievable. But yeah. really really a dumpster fire so (laughs) it's dead again (laughs) again again well this has been another episode of talk movie to me if you would like to get in touch with us our email is talkmovie to me at gmail.com follow us on instagram at talkmovie to me tweet at us at tmtm podcast rate and review us on itunes our website is talkmovie to me podcast.com and please become a patreon member patreon.com slash talkmovie to me next week will be our christmas special available to everybody because we're not going to be grinches and only put it on patreon but you should become a patreon member as a christmas gift to us i'm helen I'm missing Claire. <laughs> and I'm Edison. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>